This is our fifth session, so after today we'll be one-third of the way through our course. Almost done. Well, I gave you an extensive introduction, and last time we completed our first major event of world history, creation, even though secular world doesn't view it as an event. It uh, is presented as an event in the Bible, or at least a series of seven days of creation, one of them being rest. Today we will look at the second major event that is also overlooked and viewed as mythological in the culture in which we live in. And unfortunately, even some churches are a little weak on the concept of the fall. So we're going to concentrate on Genesis 3 for the first hour or so, and then we'll give you an apologetic that deals with one issue, the major issue that is brought up in Genesis chapter 3. And from your outline sheet, I think you can tell what that issue is going to be in terms of the nature of evil, what is evil all about, or the issue or the problem of evil. So we want to give an answer to that because from the unbelieving viewpoint, this is the major argument against the God of the Bible. It's a major argument against God in general. Atheism uses it as its major argument against the existence of God. And others that may not be atheistic but are not biblical, use it as an argument that God is either not all-powerful because he could prevent it, or he's not really good because a good God would not permit all the suffering and evil that exists in the world. So we'll deal with that issue in the apologetic portion. Last time on creation, we focused on the nature of God, what God is like, who is he, And that's the starting point for all things, so he is the foundation for everything. And the Bible begins that way, in the beginning, God, we saw that. We saw also an implication of the origin of language and its importance. And we're going to see a little bit more about language today, because language is used to communicate, and it can be used for evil just as easily as it can be used for good. Thirdly, we saw the nature of man, which is very important. The nature of man is also distorted in the culture we live in, so it's good to have a clear understanding of what we are all about. And particularly the purpose of man, our culture, there's a lot of hopelessness, a lot of lack of direction, a lot lack of sense of purpose. So it's important that we have a clear view of what the purpose of man is, on a general basis, so we can find out what the pur- what our purpose is on an individual basis. It'll have something to do with that general purpose, but it'll be more specific in relation to you and I as individuals. We looked at the nature of creation. What is the creation like, or what is what people describe as nature? So I gave you the first part of a biblical foundation for science, which is the study of nature. We'll add to that a little bit, and then we'll add some more when we talk about the Genesis Flood. So we'll come back to that. And that brings us to Genesis 3, if you haven't already turned there. We're going to deal with the fall of mankind, and we will view it 
just as any other event of world history, except this one is just as important as the creation, and that's one of the reasons why probably our culture denies it, because it has very, very far-reaching implications. So we're going to put it on our timeline, and in our timeline of history, this is part of our foundation of history, are these major events. Kind of towards the end, I'll give you a foundation for history as well. But it'll include these major events, and the events will begin in the beginning, so it'll be from eternity to eternity. This course will only deal with the events of the Old Testament. We looked at the creation, first major event. Second major event is the fall, so we'll put it on the timeline. We're not given a chronological time frame, but somewhere, obviously, after the creation of man and woman in Genesis 3, before they have their first children, so it has to be relatively early, we have the fall of man, but it doesn't give us any specific time frame. And as we will do to kind of set the foundation and framework for what we're talking about, I'll be giving you little bits and pieces of what God is like. We started that from the very beginning. And we'll continue it with every event. And I will find particular perfections of God that are related to that particular event. And probably the most striking attribute of God is his holiness in terms of the fall. And that holiness of God puts into perspective the significance of the fall and why it is so damaging in terms of mankind. So God is holy, and the scriptures are very clear on that. In fact, we will talk some more about the holiness of God as well when we talk about that apologetic portion. We'll touch on it. What is the holiness of God? Simply described, it means that God is totally other. He is totally different from anything that you can conceive of. Totally other is a simple description of holiness. We generally think in terms of separateness. That's another idea. So God is totally separate from everything else separate and distinct, and we also think of being separate from sin. And that's generally what we think in terms of when we speak of the holiness of God. So God is totally separate from sin. So when we come to the fall, sin comes onto the planet, affects mankind, affects the whole universe, and it's going to have an effect on a relationship to a holy God that is separate from sin. Thiessen describes the holiness of God as God is absolutely separate. I just mentioned that. Absolutely separate from and exalted above all his creatures. So the separateness idea. And is equally separate from all moral evil and sin. The last two things that I noted on the last slide there. Very good description, holiness of God. And there's literally hundreds of passages that speak of the holiness of God. We won't go through all of them. I'll just give you one that actually comes from an Old Testament passage. It comes from Isaiah 6.3, but it's contained in the last book of the Bible, Revelation 4.8. And it's a description of God, and it has the 
threefold holy in it. And it's the only perfection of God where God is described as holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty. It doesn't say loving, loving, loving is the Lord God. It says holy, holy, holy. And that's the only threefold description tied to his attributes or his perfections. So it kind of emphasizes the holiness of God. And in this passage, the Almighty links his holiness with his omnipotence. And I could give you many, many verses as well, many throughout Old Testament and many in the New Testament. The Spirit himself is called the Holy Spirit, identifying the third person with God's holiness. So very, very important attribute. So the holiness of God is foundational because it is related in terms of man. This is what separates man from God in that God is holy, and now that man experiences sin, introduces a major problem in Scripture, which we'll talk about. My outline of Genesis, first major division of Genesis I describe as primeval history, and the first part of that is the history of creation that we looked at when we talked about creation. We saw the early history of mankind, beginning in chapter 2, verse 4, through the end of chapter 3, and there are two things concerning the early history of mankind. And by the way, the reason I break this up is because we do have a distinct break at verse 4 in the Hebrew text. Remember I talked a little bit about the Toledoths? This is the first one in verse 4. So that's why I break it up. Plus, it fits into a broader outline of the book. We looked at the creation of mankind specifically, which is an expansion of the creation of man on the sixth day. So we saw from verse 4, verse 25 of chapter 2. And the second part of that is chapter 3, which is the fall of man. So we have two events, one right after the other. So we're going to focus on chapter 3 only today. And I'll break it down into its... Major parts, first major part is the temptation, it's verses 1 through 5. And this temptation that the enemy used on the woman, I think it's very important that we understand what went on there, not only to understand what led to the fall of mankind, but I think there's a pattern there that you can trace that you can probably identify with you experiencing on several occasions, I'm sure, all of or some of the elements that the woman experienced in her temptation. So we'll, we'll look at it carefully and look at the, the individual verses in that. Okay, the temptation. Let's begin by reading. Would somebody care read loudly? Connie, why don't you start us off? Read verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say we must not eat the tree in the garden? Okay. A couple of things to note there. A part of the creation, the serpent. In other words, one of the creatures is involved in this temptation. Now, the Bible develops, and we will see that the serpent is not acting on its own. And most theologians acknowledge that the serpent is simply a tool or an instrument that uh, someone behind the serpent uses. And if it's not clear throughout Scripture, the book of Revelation identifies the serpent with 
Satan himself in uh, chapter 12, verse, verse 9. So the serpent is at least the instrument of, of Satan here. And the language is interesting. It says the serpent was more crafty, or what do some of the other versions say? What they all use the same? This New American Standard. Anybody have a different version? Subtle. Subtle. There's a play on words. I don't know if I used this before. I may have done it in hermeneutics. I can't remember. But the word crafty or subtle there is arum. And it sounds very similar. I think the play on words is from verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked. Ara. Ara arum. And I think there's somewhat of a play on words here. The nakedness portrays innocence. And the serpent is more crafty, kind of a counterpart to this innocence. Crafty in the sense of deceptive, even evil. Uh, I was thinking of the vulnerability of nakedness and then the, uh, the serpent taking advantage. Taking advantage of that. That might be involved as well. Good point. Was more crafty than any beast of the field, and perhaps this is the reason the serpent is utilized, which the Lord God had made. So we're talking about creation involved here. And the main point here is, and he said to the woman, indeed has God said... And notice what God said. First of all, it prefaces it, indeed. What does that do? That's true. Um, not so much that. Questioning, yeah, the idea of questioning here, yes. Beginning to introduce, did God really say this? Indeed, did he say this? And then he poses, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden, and immediately it's all twisted. It's all it's all mixed up here. He mixes up the words that we read in chapter 2, beginning in verse 16 and 17. It seems like he twists verses 16 with 17 in what he says. So what he does is he, first of all, introduces doubt with the little word indeed, but he also introduces a an overt denial. You shall not eat. That's not what God said. God said you may eat what? Of everything freely. You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. So what we have is a distortion of God's word immediately. And this is what we need to be on guard for. And this is one of the reasons why we want to devote ourselves to a study of God's word and continually have it before us. And it's a good practice to even memorize scripture so that we know it. Because what Satan will do in introducing a temptation, he will either distort or in some cases even deny God's word. And certainly in that distortion, his whole intent is to create doubt that what God says is actually reality. And not only is there doubt and denial, but there's a distortion in that, what does he leave out? The idea that they may eat freely from any of the trees, as we saw in chapter 2. Well, another thing to note in the passage is the command was given before the woman was created. It was given to man. The question to ask, well, where is man? Where is the man? And the text doesn't tell us. I don't know whether he's nearby or whether he's not around or whether the woman 
puts herself in this situation. At any point, the first thing in this series of temptations that we have in verse 1 is vulnerability. And the enemy will seek us out, and he knows our strengths, and he knows our weaknesses, and he knows our vulnerabilities. And when we are vulnerable, he will strike. So the woman is alone, at least in the text. The man has not mentioned till later on. And we don't know whether he arrives or comes or whether he is close enough that the woman finds him. So in terms of application, one thing that we need to be on guard of is we need to know ourselves, we need to know our own weaknesses, and be careful that we not put ourselves in positions that are vulnerable because we are susceptible to temptation. And we, even more so than the woman, because we have a fallen nature, she did not. Secondly, beware of doubts that are raised by simple questions that might be asked. And usually these doubts arise simply in our own thinking, but they may come from the very pit itself. So there's the second element here is vulnerability. Secondly, doubts. So let's read the next verse. Okay, what are we on two? We're verse two. Okay. Stop at two. Stop at two. The woman begins to respond, and she continues in verse three, and she answers from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. So this is a response from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. And what did God say in chapter 2, verse 16? From any, in other words, there's all of these trees, from any tree of the garden you may eat, and not only from any tree, but you may eat abundantly or freely. You may eat to your heart's content. And before the fall, there's no weight problem, there's no issues of health, there's no issues of... Pardon me? Diabetes or obesity. So freely to your heart's content, basically. What's the difference between what she quoted and what God said? Portion of the truth. She leaves out any from the fruit of the trees, fruit of the, the garden. And also, very importantly, she doesn't say freely. In other words, that idea that we looked at that the infinitive absolute presents to us. So what does she do here? She's what, what is she doing with God's word? Not only has she doubted it, first of all, she's vulnerable. Next, she doubts, or doubts are introduced. How might we summarize the third thing? Minimizes it. She minimizes God's word. What God says illustrates his goodness, the greatness, the opportunity. But she kind of diminishes it, or we might say minimizes it in verse 2. And what she's really doing is minimizing the goodness of God. You've ever experienced that in your temptation, where you feel restricted, you feel like God has limited you, and if you just can pursue the temptation, somehow this is more than what God has provided for you? Well, she minimizes it. Let's read the next part. You want to read it? Three. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Okay. This is still the woman talking. Now what has she done? 
Notice in chapter 2, verse 17, but from the tree of the knowledge of the good and, good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. And this is what she says, but from the fruit of the tree, of which is in the middle of the garden, God said, you shall not eat from it or touch it. Did God say that? Nope. Lest you die. Now, in a way, you could even highlight this as well, lest you die, it kind of changes the consequences here. But I think one thing that is definite here is, or touch it, that stands out. Now, she minimized the goodness of God, but now what is she doing on the other end of the spectrum? She's magnifying the restriction. Magnifying the restriction. And how many times in your temptation or my temptation... Do we uh, not only feel pinched in by what God requires of us, but also uh, we forget about the uh, restriction or we forget about the uh, the things that God says thou shalt not do. We magnify that into something that's bigger than what God actually says. Isn't that kind of what the Jews did with all the books of the law? That's what we all do in lots of areas, but yeah, I would agree. Yep, that's what they did. Verse 4. You want to read that one, Mark? The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. Okay. It's pretty blatant. Chapter 2, verse 17. God says you will surely die. What does the serpent say? An outright denial of what God said. So a blatant denial or a de-emphasis of the consequences. So the restriction is not only magnified in our thinking, but uh, what Satan will do in temptation is de-emphasize consequences. And that's the the negation of the infinitive absolute. Remember we said, uh, will surely die. In the Hebrew text, it has the idea of you will die dead, emphasizing the definiteness of it. And Satan turns around the definiteness to it to actually denying it on the other end of the spectrum. So he uses the infinitive absolute also, but he does it in denying what God said. So we have a de-emphasis on the consequences. And now in verse 5, let's read it. You want to read it? For God does know that in your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as God's. Okay. God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. And not only that, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. It's positive. Who doesn't want to be like God? Who doesn't want to know more about the things of God? So it's very positive, but it's also very subtle. There's some distortion here. Does God know good and evil? Yep. Will the man and the woman know good and evil if they partake in it? They will definitely know it. But what is the difference between God's knowing and... Mankind's knowing. But he told her that she will surely die, but she didn't. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. I was thinking ahead. Yes, you're thinking ahead. What's the difference between God's knowledge of good and evil and after sin, man's knowledge of good and evil? This comes true. This part comes true. They have an enlightened view of good and evil. It's going to be different, though. Connie? Well, how we choose evil with that? 
for you and all of you. God's holiness keeps him separate. You can know about evil, but he doesn't participate in it. Whereas with our fallen nature, absolutely. That's the basic difference. Is God knows good and evil because he's omniscient and he knows everything objectively. And in case of evil, he knows it separate from it. And the difference is that now man and woman, after the temptation, will know evil subjectively and it will have an impact upon them. They will not know it objectively in the way that God knows good and evil. Part of it is a, well, it's a half-truth. Part of it is true and part of it is not true. They will not be like God, but they will know good and evil, but they'll know it different from God. So what we have here is the woman now is in a position of judging. Is the words of this creature with Satan behind it, are his words authoritative? Is that the authority that I can believe in? Or are God's words authoritative? She has a decision. She has a choice. And that's at the heart of evil, is choosing to go against what God has said. That's the essence of evil. And we'll see this later on. But evil is not a thing. Evil is not something that you can touch or feel. Evil is a choice contrary to God's will. That's the essence of it. And now she is in a position of making a decision. She should have, right off the bat, made a decision and thwarted off this other word. So we have a a word from a creature who is the agent of Satan himself. And now she is going to be the first scientist in that she's going to perform an experiment. I'm going to test to see if whether the... The serpent's words are right or whether God's words are right. And she puts herself in the position of a judge. And she puts the words of the serpent on the same level of authority as the words of God. And now she's going to conduct her experiment. Let's read uh, verse 6. Loretta, you want to do that one? When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from it fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Okay. Now, he's there now, obviously. What do you see in that passage in relationship to temptation? It deals with her observation. She saw something. Remember, she's a scientist now. She's making observations. And based on those observations, she's going to make choices or decisions. What does she see? Okay. Number seven on our list here, the alternative is very appealing. And temptation is always presented in an appealing way. Or we wouldn't fall for it. It's appealing, and uh, it's appealing to all of the senses here. Good for food. Delight to the eyes. In other words, it's going to... Looks good in terms of nourishment, delight to the eyes, desire to make one wise. That was the promise of Satan. She would be like God and know good and evil. Well, those three descriptions kind of sum up the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh. flesh. Mm-hmm. All three. First John. Very good. 
So we have seven elements of temptation, and usually, because we are fallen, it may only take one of these for us to fall for the alternative. So we have the woman's vulnerability, the man is not mentioned, Satan raises doubts, and she follows through on those doubts, and then as she responds, she minimizes the goodness of God. Fourthly, she also magnifies the restriction, the restriction is blown out of proportion, Fifthly, Satan then de-emphasizes the consequences, and she's pretty well hooked. So by six, now she's in a position to make a judgment, so she judges, and that in itself is wrong. She's putting herself in a position of where God should be. God's the one that judges, and she's going to judge between the authority of the serpent or the authority of God, and now the alternative is so appealing that it's just a matter of following through. That's temptation. Now beware, because we, any one of these can get us in terms of falling into sin. So in chapter 1, in fact, we've emphasized God's word throughout so far. In Genesis 1, God speaks all of the creation into being. God speaks it into being. We also saw in Genesis 1, uh, we saw that the word is God's speaking, God's revelation, the beginning of language. And in chapter 2, God speaks again, but now it's in a form of a command. And that's 16 and 17. And now at the beginning of Genesis 3, the word of God is changed or perverted, you might say. So I'm using alliteration here with C's. Creation, command, changed. Perversion actually is better there, but you can put both. So the serpent perverts the word, but the woman also changes it. So a high emphasis on the word of God. Now, an implication here, kind of a secondary implication, but what is the origin of evil from Genesis 3? It doesn't give us a specific origin of it, but we see that evil, scripturally, comes from angelic creatures. Evil descends from heaven, and it does not come from earth. And we won't read these, but the Bible is not, what's the word, doesn't speak frequently of the origin of evil. Probably the two passages are Isaiah 14, and you might just jot them down. Most scholars believe that this, this is a description of the fall of Satan. Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 17. And similarly, in Ezekiel 28, verses 11 through 19, that seems to be adding to the fall of Satan, giving more detail. Those two central passages seem to give us the origin of evil in terms of angelic creatures. Now, in the context, it's speaking of leaders of two different nations. But most scholars see behind these kings are a satanic personage, Lucifer himself. So the origin of evil comes out of angelic creatures. And is one of those passages the one that says, I saw Satan cast out of That's Revelation. You're thinking of Revelation 12, I think. Yeah, Revelation 12. Ezekiel 28, verses 11 through 19. And you said those are, the actual context is earthly kings, but it's an... Um, it goes beyond them. It seems to go beyond them, the influences behind them. The origin of evil in terms of mankind 
is this Genesis 3 passage where sin now is part of the earth, or affecting the earth at least. So this will bring us to some of the implications that we want to begin to draw in terms of suffering. So this is the foundation to suffering and pain and evil and then ultimately death. And the reason we want to develop a foundation is because the culture in which we live in goes totally contrary to these ideas. And really, our culture does not have an explanation for suffering, and it does not offer any hope for suffering. But the biblical worldview explains and gives us a foundation for suffering to understand it, and then it gives us a hope for its solution. So we're going to talk a lot about that. I'm just beginning with this slide here. Number one, it starts, in terms of suffering, starts with a holy God, the holiness of God. That's the first thing that you need to keep in mind. God is holy. That means that God is separate and distinct from evil, and ultimately God is not the author of suffering. That's number one. So God is not the source of evil, and therefore is not the source of suffering. That's the first thing to keep in mind. That's first point in the biblical foundation for suffering. Secondly, suffering finds its roots in the origin of evil, and we just noted evil does not begin on earth. Evil begins in heaven. So there's a prior fall to the fall of man that we don't have in Genesis. So the origin of evil is not earth. The origin of evil are satanic creatures outside of Earth. So that's where evil starts in heaven? Yes. Satanic forces. S- Satan as the using the agent of the serpent in Genesis 3. He's already fallen. Oh, Genesis. Yeah, he's already fallen. So beginning in verse 6, and we read it, so let's read it again. This is the transgression, but I kind of transitioned from temptation because it gave us that seventh element to temptation, the alternative. So let's read verse 6 again, and then we'll read uh, verse 7. You want to start us off again? 6 and 7? Yeah, read both of them. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for taking wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Yeah, stop there, and then we'll, we'll get 7 in a moment. Let's take a look at the appeal, or what makes it appealing. And this is kind of comprehensive, I think, of temptation in general. It oftentimes has a sensual aspect to it. It appeals to us physically, if you will, whether it be food, whether it be sexual, whether it be just things that are pleasurable to the body. So it has a physical aspect to it, the appeal. We can call that sensual. What other elements? Maybe the first one. Can you think of others? Particularly verse 6. Well, that's that's physical. What about the the uh, pleasing to the eye thing? What's it? Okay, that's another one later. Yeah, the second one, The what about the one where... Attractive. Attractive. Aesthetic. It's aesthetic. Sometimes it'll appeal to your aesthetic sense, which 
may be tied to your emotions. Temptation may be tied to your emotions. Sometimes it's just purely physical. Sometimes it may be purely emotional. It's everything you can't have has with you. Yes. <laughs> well, that God doesn't want you to have. That doesn't want you to have. And then what Linda was alluding to, it appeals to the intellect or wisdom, intellect. This is where pride comes from, and sometimes it's just intellectual. So it can be purely physical, or it can be a combination of all of them. It can be purely emotional, it can be purely intellectual, and fourthly, it involves the will. So it's going to involve a rationalization, and usually in our case, it's not that bad, it's not going to hurt that much, I can always confess it. God will forgive me. God will forgive me. Forgive me. Yeah, it's a rationalization. I was, uh, was pointed out to me that she had no example. No one had ever eaten an apple that had anything happen. And I thought, that's not fair. And then I realized, right now, if someone shows you a drug addict on the street shooting up, it doesn't stop people from starting. Yep. It, an example of how where it leads does not stop people. Yep. Right? Because we always believe we won't. We will be able to stop. We won't turn into that. Right. Yeah. There's always rationalization which affects the will. So the appeal of temptation may be physical, may be emotional, may be intellectual, but it always ends in a willful choice. And the physical, emotional, and intellectual will contribute to that decision or that rationalization. So in terms of suffering, we begin, number one, holiness of God. God's not the source. Origin of evil, not earth. Thirdly, very clearly in Genesis 3, man is responsible. Man is responsible. And this will be reinforced as we go through the passage. Man tries to not only rationalize it, but he tries to pass it on. We'll see that in the following passages. But God holds each one responsible. So man is not a victim. This is a big thing in our culture. The victimization, groups, people are victimized. The reason, in fact, what's this big summit that they've been having? We need to understand the Islamists. We need to know that they're victimized if we can only get them jobs, right? <laughs> that's the solution. That's getting out from the responsibility of man. And that's what's part of our culture, and that's part of who we are. We, we want to get out of the responsibility. That's all of the unbelieving worldviews deny the responsibility in some way and makes man a victim. Man's not a victim. He is fully responsible. Some say if going through a mental institution and make this clear, in a mental, straighten out the mental illness and go away. I don't know if that's true. It probably is. In a lot of cases, in a lot of cases, in mental patients. I saw myself as a precious <laughs> until I did, until you were confronted with your until the truth hit me, and I feel set free by that. Yeah, and it's only the biblical worldview that gives us a solution, and we'll see that as we get further. Fourthly, in our foundation for suffering, it also exposes the nature of sin. It's not a mistake. That's what our culture will tell you. It's not a mistake, but it's a willful choice that's evil, that is contrary to God's will. It's rebellion against what God has stated. That's the nature of sin. We'll see that some more as well. 
Fifthly, we will begin to see, beginning in Genesis 3, that God deals with evil in history. And God's going to begin in Genesis 3, and you might even, and I like to summarize, world history is beginning in Genesis 3, from Genesis 3 on, world history is a story of God dealing with evil. So God dealing with it, that means we're not hopeless, situation's not hopeless, there's hope, because God is dealing with it, and in our time, God has already dealt with it such that we have an answer to it and we have release from it. Not total, but we anticipate total release in the future. Now, this is in contrast to pagan cultures throughout history. This is representative just of one culture before even Mosaic times. Uh, Alexander Heidel, who is a... What kind of a scholar is he? I can't remember, but he's got a book on a lot of ancient documents. And what he's speaking of is the account that I showed you last time, Enuma Elish, the Babylonian creation account. He's alluding to some of the elements in it. And in that account, the gods, they're evil, and the world was created from the gods. So he says the following, Since all the gods were evil by nature in the Babylonian pantheon, And since man was formed with their blood, man, of course, inherited their evil nature. In other words, we're made from evil stuff. He goes on, man consequently was created evil, created evil. It's different from the biblical account. And was evil from his very beginning. How then could he fall? So there's no fall in the Babylonian account. The idea, he goes on, the idea that man fell from a state of moral perfection does not fit into the system or systems of Babylonian speculation. And you can use that same quote to substitute any unbelieving worldview. So the idea that man fell from a state of moral perfection does not fit into the system or systems of any worldview apart from the biblical worldview. A lot of people think man's basically good. That's right. So how, wait, so... Okay, man has been good, then there'd have to be fall. No. How could he still be good? Right. She's talking about the es- they're, they're talking about the essence of man. They see evil as external. We'll get to that. And and man man is afflicted by an evil environment. So if you can change his environment, that's that's liberalism. If you can change man's environment, then man will utilize that goodness in him. Right. That's right. And this is why the unbelieving worldview is totally off base. Okay. That comes, or he's quoting in relationship to Enuma Elish, the Babylonian account, but I use it as an example of what is typical from any of the unbelieving worldviews. So number six in our foundations for suffering, suffering, and this is very, very important because the biblical view is that evil is bounded. And it's only the biblical view. And that's extremely important. Evil is bounded. It's not normal. Every other philosophy, every other religion, from their perspective, evil just exists. Evil is just there, alongside a good. Good and evil just coexist. The yin and the yang, evil and good, 
It's just there. It always was there. It always will be. It's only the biblical view that says that evil is bounded. So let me expand on what we mean by that. And we can go back to our little timeline here. Beginning with the fall, evil is introduced into the creation, into God's universe. And the unbelieving worldview, this line, represents evil. It always was in eternity past. It's a symbol for infinity. And it always will be eternity future. That's the unbelieving world, every unbelieving worldview. Whether it be Islam, or whether it be New Age, or whether it be... Now, New Age, to some extent, denies the existence of evil, but it's unreal. But certainly secular humanism, evil always existed, was always there, will always be. The biblical worldview is different. This is evil, this arrow or line. Biblical, it God created, everything was what? Very good. No evil uh, in the universe. So evil, when we say it's bounded, it has a beginning. And the Bible tells us that God deals with evil through history. And in God's dealing with man, beginning in Genesis 3, we're going to get to that in a moment, God deals with evil in Genesis 3. And he makes some promises that go all the way to the end of history, dealing with evil. And he deals with evil in the first uh, two Characters after Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. He's dealing with evil there. The Genesis flood, God's dealing with evil. Sodom and Gomorrah, God is dealing with evil. You can think of all of these examples throughout Scripture where God is constantly dealing with evil. And all of the Old Testament is moving towards a pivotal event at the center of world history where evil is finally judged. And that's the hope that the rest of the world does not have. Evil was judged on the cross, and it's just a matter of time where God is going to deal ultimately with evil, where evil will be confined in Revelation chapter 20 to the lake of fire. Revelation 20. In fact, let's look that one up. Whose turn is it to read, Linda? Revelation 20, 11. Then I saw a large white throne, and the one who was seated on it. And by the way, the context of that passage, that is the last event of world history. This is the great white throne judgment. Keep reading. And the, uh, the earth and heaven fled from its presence, and no place was found in them. And I saw the dead, the great, and the small standing room. Then books were opened, and another book was the book of life. So the dead were judged. Now these are all unbelieving dead. Unbelieving dead are judged. Keep reading. By what was written in the books, according to their deeds. Keep reading. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. Okay, death and Hades. All right. And each one was judged. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Okay. Th- death and Hades thrown into the lake of fire. Okay. Second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the life, that person was thrown into the lake of fire. Therefore, believe Jesus is not optional. <laughs> That's right. Now skip to chapter 22 and read verse 3. 
But what that passage, the Revelation 20 passage, is saying from here on into eternity, sin, evil, death, second death, unbelievers are all cast into the lake of fire. They're confined in the lake of fire forever and ever. And 22.3? 22.3 says, And there will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God... Now the curse refers all the way back to Genesis 3. And the throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city. His servants will worship him. They will see his face. And his name will be on their forehead. Okay, that's good. But basically, that's the end of sin. That's the end of evil. So when we talk about evil being bounded, we're talking about it having a beginning. And when we deal with evil, there's hope in the biblical worldview because God is dealing with it. And God has decisively dealt with it in Jesus Christ on the cross. And we simply await the time when it'll be eternally confined. That's in contrast to every other philosophy, every other religion. The unbelieving worldview is evil just exists with no hope. Always existed, always will. The Bible is different. So that's what we mean by evil being bounded. So, okay, back to the crucifixion. That's when, does this come into play? Mm-hmm. The crucifixion from that time on until the end? Is that what you're saying? No, what I'm saying, it was judged. All of sin and man's sin was judged. In other words, it was dealt with in a final, in a final way on the cross. Oh, on the cross. Yep. And when Jesus comes, this line represents a thousand years here. This line represents when Jesus comes. I don't show it on the slide there. But this millennial period is still part of history, and the great white throne is the last event of Revelation 20 at the end of world history. And that's when all of that will be cast into the lake of fire. So evil is confined to the lake of fire into eternity. That's what we mean by evil being bounded. Very significant. So, the nature of evil is man's rebellious, autonomous thinking, attitude. You know what autonomy is? Man independent of God. So, beginning in Genesis 3, verse 8 through 13, God is going to confront evil, confront man. 1 through 5, the temptation. 6 and 7, the transgression. Now, let's take a look at the confrontation. And this will answer your question, Loretta, concerning death. God said, in the day that you eat of it, you shall what? You shall die dead. Well, Loretta's saying, well, they didn't die dead. What happened? Well, I'm going to say they did die dead. This is what happened. So let's take a look at what the Bible means when it speaks about death. This is a biblical definition, if you will, or a biblical expansion of death. And let's read... Beginning in verse 8, whose turn is it? Lana, you don't have a Bible? Okay. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the middle of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Okay. Actually, back in verse 7, then their eyes were both open. They knew that they were naked. Notice that nakedness. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together, made themselves loin coverings, and then in verse 8, what did they do in verse 8? They're hiding. They're making decisions based on what happened to them, 
And these are kind of things that their minds are rationalizing now, now that sin has entered. And I believe that what this is telling us is death involves the death of our intellect to some extent. It's not extinguished, but now death has impacted our thinking. Now, they knew God, and they knew him freely, but in verse 7, they have twisted their thinking to think that they can deal with this sin on their own by creating these coverings. That's man's attempt to deal with sin on his own. That's a thought process. Notice there's also a thought process concerning who God is. What has their mind twisted concerning the nature of God? that you can get away from God, or you can hide. Is it possible to hide from God? Now, I think before, they probably had a sense of the omnipresence of God. In other words, God is everywhere. You can't flee from him. Now, intellectually, they're thinking through, and their mind is twisted. Somebody look up, Mark, you want to look up Ephesians 4. And in Ephesians 4, it kind of expands this intellectual darkening that is as a result of the fall of man. I think it's verse 17 in there, 17, 18. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their minds. In the futility of their minds, keep reading. Being darkened in their understanding. Darkened in their understanding. This is what sin has done. Excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in Ignorance them. that is in them. The intellect is affected. Because of the hardness of their heart. Hardness of the heart. And that's where thoughts come from, is the heart. 17 and 18, I think. There's ignorance. Oh, it's ignorance already. That's the effects of the fall. Man's intellect is darkened. That's part of death. Part of dying it affects the intellect. And also it has a moral effect. They have shame. So it has a moral effect. It has an intellectual effect, darkening of minds. Moral effect, shame. It's also in verse 27 there. They recognize they were naked. And they hid themselves because of their shame. And 8 and 9, do you want to read those again? Let's see, you were reading 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Notice they're separated from God. That's death. Spiritual separation. So death involves the intellect, it involves our moral aspect, it involves our spirits. And they died on the day that they ate. Verse 10, do you want to read that one, Randy? And he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was... That's the man. And he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. So man's hiding himself. It has an emotional aspect. For the first time, fear. He was afraid because of his sin. Emotional death. 11 and 12. Loretta, do you want to read those two? And he said, This is God now. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, 
the woman whom you gave me to be with me gave me from the tree, and I ate. What do you have there? Blame. Blame. Yep. So it's not only intellectual, it's not only moral, it's not only spiritual, it's not only emotional, but what else is it? Relational. Relational is a good word. I use the word social, same thing. Relational, social, in that he blames others. So there's an intellectual, a moral, a spiritual, an emotional, and a social death on the day that they ate. Now what we have, I should also say, in verse 11... When God asks the question, it's not because God doesn't already know, because he's omniscient. What is God doing in this context? It's somewhat anthropomorphic in that God is portrayed like a person, but God knows all things. It's not for information that he's asking the question. God is bringing them to a place of repentance. Very good. Yeah, he is working to get a response from them. So by asking questions, he's bringing their sin to the surface so that they may begin to deal with the sin in a proper way. So number five, we have a social issue. Here's the beginning of the social. That'd be sort of the end of the story, huh? Yep. God could judge right there, eliminate mankind. Interrelationships here. <laughs> Let's read 17 and 18. Who's got 17 and 18? Who's turning it? To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife, nay, from the tree, about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat of the plants of the field. Okay. And number six. So the creation itself is going to be damaged, and as a result, man's purpose is going to be hindered. So in that sense, in terms of the purpose of man, there's going to be some experience of death, if you will. That goes back to the creation mandate that we looked at under creation in Genesis chapter 1. So man's purpose is damaged as a result of sin. And now it's going to be difficult to... Make a living, if you will. And then the physical death is predicted in the future in verse 19. Do you want to read that one, Linda? By the sweat of your brow, until you return to the For all of you you were taken, but you are dust, and in dust you will return. Okay, there's the ceasing of breathing, returning back to dust. There's the physical death. The physical that we think of when we think of death expresses itself in that we are in the process of dying and we experience pain and ultimately we stop breathing. And that will take place in Adam and Eve later. But in the day that they ate, they died intellectually, they died morally, they died spiritually, they died emotionally, they died socially. The only thing that is postponed is the physical. And they will surely die. Let's take a break and then we'll come back and we'll take a look at God's condemnation, verses 14 through 19, where everything is changed. We have judgment, first judgment in the Bible. Let's take a break.